This is Committable. Our focus with this podcast has always been on involuntary commitments. And while the realities of forced and coerced medications were sometimes mentioned in our interviews, we never really explored it. To learn more about the experience of navigating psychiatric medications, we spoke to Jen Niles. So my name is Jen Niles, and the last couple of years I started doing advocacy for creating change in mental health because 21 years ago, I was medicated by a primary care doctor for something that didn't need medication. And then that resulted in two decades of treatment and then becoming convinced I had a disorder I didn't have. And it took so much work to get out of all of that, that I decided I wanted to share my story to help other people who might be in similar situations because it's tragic what sometimes happens in the system. You're being prescribed medication. You're assuming that this medication is supposed to be working. What sort of pressures are you experiencing when you identify that you think there might be a problem? At the time, there was that pressure of you just need to keep trying until you find the right one. But the reality was the medication was actually the problem. And because it caused so many problems, I eventually believed I truly had a problem that perhaps medication was needed to fix, but it just, it, it wasn't the case. And I had originally believed that what I was experiencing was outside of myself. At 17, I was being bullied and bullying is something that I've experienced since I was around 11 or 12. So that caused a significant amount of anxiety. But of course, I'd actually resolved anxiety in the past. And so when I was getting prescribed treatment when I was 17, it was for depression, but I wasn't actually depressed. I could say I had feelings around the fact that I was being bullied and I had some feelings around the deaths that had occurred in my family, just normal, regular human feelings. And I was so confused as to why I was being told that this is a chemical imbalance because I'm like, This is my life that I don't like. It's the things that have happened. How is that a chemical imbalance? But enough medications causing enough problems in my brain, I was like, oh, I guess I have a chemical imbalance. And the meds just keep getting pushed. How do you reach a point where you can advocate for yourself, given that the experts you're working with are telling you you need to keep taking medication? See, at the time, when I was 17, um, Zoloft was the first psychiatric drug I ever took, and I had a rash on my entire body from it, and so that one was a little bit easy to get off of because I was having an allergic reaction, so I asked to come off of that, and then um, I was prescribed Paxil immediately after. I took it for three days, and I had no appetite. I was very thin. And in the past, I had issues with eating from when I I used to have severe anxiety attacks in junior high school. My throat would close up, so I couldn't eat. I was misunderstood for a period of time as anorexic, but I wasn't anorexic. I just could not swallow my food. And so that was interfering with eating. 
So when I lost my appetite on Paxil, I'm like, I don't want to be on this because it was just a reminder of something that I didn't want to relive. So I thought that was the end of psych drugs for me, but it was in the fall of 99. So around that October time that at that point, after the psych drugs first had come into my life, it changed something in my brain. So I was having a hard time focusing. My life was also getting significantly more stressful. So I started to think, okay, so maybe people are right. Maybe meds are the answer. I was mad because the psychiatrist I saw wanted to give me antidepressants again. And I was adamantly saying like, I'm not depressed. Like I don't want antidepressants. Like I have anxiety. I was prescribed Buspar. It's also called, I believe, Buspirone. It made everything a million times worse. I was very not well. I was cold turkeyed off of that and put on 60 milligrams of Celexa. I understand this back-to-back -back combination is dangerous and can result in coma or death because I've looked into it. I'm not sure if I was prescribed these immediately back-to-back -back, or if there was the two-week time period that was supposed to be had. All I remember is how incredibly unwell I was. I rebalanced after this. This was my senior year in high school. I was an AB student. I was on track for a full scholarship. School was kind of my thing. And then now my brain was not the same and I was having trouble and that was frustrating. And then after I graduated high school, I decided I don't wanna be on these meds any longer. This has made me worse and I want off. And so I told my counselor that these meds made me worse and I wanna come off. She sent me to the psychiatrist that she directly worked with. And so I was 18 at this point, just starting college on my full scholarship, which I didn't get to use. And I sat down with the psychiatrist and he asked me why I was there. I said that I was told I had to come to him for a taper plan off of this. And now the tapering, I was surprised that tapering was a thing because I'd just been cold turkeyed off of Buspar. So I didn't even know that they had these rules that they're supposed to follow. So he asked me what was going on and I explained my situation. He said to me, sounds like you need your meds. And I said, pretty much, this is not up for discussion. I'm here to come off because these have made me worse. And I wouldn't give him the time of day other than give me a taper plan and I'm out of here. Because I was really, really angry about just the changes that I'd experienced after being medicated. And I, at that point, understood myself as harmed by medication. Problem was, as I tapered off of the meds, it was 20 milligrams per month. And Celexa is not supposed to be prescribed past 40 milligrams now because 60 was killing people because it was causing heart issues for some. So my experiences at a young age were really dangerous. And it's understandable that I was such a... Um, disaster, I guess. So I was tapering off of the Alexa, and every time I'd make a drop, I was experiencing levels of anxiety that were different from the anxiety that I experienced in junior high school when I did have like actual full-blown anxiety attacks that had gotten out of control. I started becoming agoraphobic. This was because of trauma. And this was something that I resolved on my own, no meds, and outside of a therapist's office once I understood 
what it was. And I just got myself out of having anxiety attacks and I didn't have them for three years. I could stop them if they tried to start. So this anxiety that I was experiencing from tapering was reaching levels that I would actually have to like leave where I was. I used to be able to just get through it, but I was curled up in the back seat of my car on campus because that's how bad the anxiety was from tapering off. And I got through coming off of it and that extreme anxiety resolved itself, but I wasn't the same after discontinuing. Like those discontinuation effects were long lasting for me. So my brain wasn't the same, my health wasn't the same, and I only got credits for two classes the entire first year. I spoke with the school though about what was going on. So I didn't have any incompletes. I got them all changed to W's because it was medical what I was experiencing. It wasn't that I wasn't trying. I mean, I really just couldn't do the work. So I left, but I left with my transcripts intact because I was hopeful to end up back in college. So I was always really good at advocating for myself. But then unfortunately, about a year and four months later, I got convinced to try medication again. And then my life took a very dark turn for the next 17 years. And so I was just a very compliant med taker until I realized the meds were the problem all along like I once knew and came off of everything. When you were prescribed meds or even suggested a medication, were you given any advice or warnings about what it might be like, not just while taking the medication, but to go off of the medication? To my recollection, I have never been informed that these medications have any type of harmful discontinuation effects. It's, it's kind of really like glossed over, like it's mostly not a big deal. If They mostly ignore that. I did have one psychiatrist talk about benzodiazepines in particular because I ended up on clonopin and I ended up taking that for 15 years. But when I was first on it, after I'd already been prescribed it, after it was already a little bit too late, especially because it worked so well at first, I thought that was a miracle. I did have a psychiatrist who at least warned me that those drugs were addictive and caused dependency and that that wasn't something I wanted to be on long-term for that reason. Me, already having been destroyed by medication and having difficulties coming off before, it was like, well, this is working for me. So number one, why do I want to come off of it? Number two, I'm tough. So if I know I can get through that, if I ever have to, I don't suffer from addiction. Like that was my mindset at the time, not understanding that they don't work the same long term as they do in the short term. And so he let me stay on it when I asked for that, unfortunately, but I don't think that it was fully explained to me that other piece, like I said. And I never feel like anybody gave me any proper risk versus benefit either because I had doctors convince me to ignore the side effects. I used to read the pamphlets for any drug that I was prescribed. I was encouraged to ignore these things. And I was even told at times, and I can't remember by who, they just have to write that. Kind of like, that's just, if one person has that as a side effect in, when they're doing the, the trials, they have to put it in there. Like, that's not something you need to worry about. So all the things that I originally tried to do to protect myself and say, I don't know if I really want to go down this path. I wasn't a drinker. I wasn't a smoker. And I didn't use illicit drugs. So I kind of thought a lot about what I put into my body. And they're just like, no, ignore all of that. 
And then now it's just like, you know, you're really supposed to read the pamphlets. Like as a consumer, that's what you should do. It's like, okay, so I was actually doing that at 17, but I was told to ignore it, but okay. <laughs> I, I'm not incredibly familiar with some of these medications, but if I understand correctly, benzodiazepines are never intended for long-term use. That's correct. They okay. are never intended for long-term use and they're technically supposed to be taken on an as-needed basis. So if they are daily, it's not supposed to go past two to four weeks. And even that comes with risk. And let me tell you, my life changed for the worse big time after I passed the two to three week mark. The first couple of weeks were great. And let me also say, the reason why I was prescribed clonopin was to help ease me onto Effexor because I had a side effect of Effexor on a single dose I'd taken in the past, that side effect was panic. So I was, my, my problem was actually anxiety. And I was prescribed a drug for this anxiety because people keep want, kept wanting to talk about this depression that I was experiencing, this depression that was created by medication and then created by the fact that my whole life fell apart after I was on these drugs to begin with. What I was depressed about was not being in college where I belonged, not having the life that I should have been living and feeling all sorts of shame and guilt around that. Like, who am I? I was the good kid. I was the kid that followed all the rules. I was the kid that got good grades that, you know, kept my nose clean. I got bullied for that, for being the good kid. So having my life change to that degree that now I just was like, I have no idea where I'm going. I'm this huge failure. And I don't even know what to do with that. That was depressing. I was working full time at 19 because I had to drop out of college. So now I'm being given Effexor to help me with whatever anxiety, depression, when Effexor causes more anxiety and I'm given Clonopin on top of it. That's a really bad decision. And not only that, I've looked up this drug combination. Effexor and Clonopin shouldn't be prescribed together. There was like nothing all right about the prescribing that was taking place like many years ago. Some of the more recent prescribers I've seen, I would not put in that category. They were people who actually cared and had my back. But back then, I met people who made some bad decisions and convinced me that that was what was needed for me. Those first two weeks, though, on Effexor and Clonopin, I felt euphoric. I didn't have any anxiety and my anxiety attacks had come back again. So I had just been experiencing a couple of months of like a lot of anxiety attacks again. And I was also developing IBS. So I was pretty stressed out. And so it felt great on Effexor and Clonopin for those two weeks. I felt uninhibited, which makes sense. Benzodiazepine, it is like alcohol. A couple that with the Effexor. So I was flying high for a couple of weeks. They were just these amazing two weeks my life fell apart after that, though. I started experiencing all of those, the adverse effects and what happens in the body when you start taking those drugs daily. And so I then became convinced that this euphoria that I experienced and this like slightly less inhibited way I was for those first two weeks was some form of mania, which it wasn't. But this is how I got convinced because I happened to meet somebody with a bipolar one diagnosis at that same time. So if I didn't meet that person and discover about bipolar disorder, I never would have been convinced 
that I had this disorder because I didn't actually experience anything that would have gotten me labeled that. So I took this information to the next psychiatrist that I was put with and became convinced that any problem I had with medication was really just this hidden bipolar that I didn't know and understand before. So that is how I was, how I was misdiagnosed and started saying really things about myself that just weren't true. So you go to a psychiatrist with the symptoms and what you believe might be the diagnosis and they agree. They say, yes, you're bipolar one. I ended up with a bipolar two diagnosis, okay. but that's kind of what happened. I'd be curious to know present day what this particular psychiatrist was really thinking at the time, because he's actually, he's a renowned psychiatrist. He, cause he's the one who told me the truth about benzodiazepines at least. And he would always, um, I remember he used to take out the DSM whenever I had it, because I had all of these horrible side effects. And he really cared about the side effects that I was experiencing and didn't really want me to suffer. And he was actually probably one of the most thoughtful people I've ever seen. And so I felt like he actually cared and supported me. And so I feel like if I had truly understood that my meds were the problem at that point early enough into it, and I said to him, you know what, I don't want to be, I don't want to be on these. I think these are the problem. I feel confident that he would have taken me off like then, and he would have had a better understanding if I wasn't saying, oh yes, the stuff that I'm experiencing is mania, is rapid cycling when it, when it wasn't. But once I figured that out, it was just sort of too, too late. I ended up on Klonopin long-term at that point. The sort of nightmarish aspect of this is it shouldn't be your responsibility to figure out what you need to tell your doctor. I'm really happy that you mentioned that because it's been something that's been on my mind for the last few days that I have felt so responsible in my life for my own health. Like I need to tell them what's going on because I feel like so often they've had no idea. I've had to figure it out for myself. I've had to be the one to find the answers because when I was 12, when, when anxiety first began for me, so when I actually had like a mental health you know, issue. Now I'm suffering from anxiety attacks. I don't know what this is. So I think I'm dying. Of course, anybody who has had panic attacks for the first time, like most of them think they're dying. They have, they're having a heart attack or something. So when I was first having them, I really had no idea what was going on. I didn't understand. And I was really scared. Plus I was losing all the weight from not being able to eat because I couldn't swallow. So my mom had taken me to my primary and he couldn't find anything wrong. I was under, I was a perfectionist type child. Oh, I've collected my medical records, by the way, so I can, I can see it in there. I'm a perfectionist type child. So that was apparently my problem. And then I ended up going to a counselor. I asked to see a counselor because I was concerned. But this counselor couldn't figure out that I had anxiety. That's the disappointing thing. She felt that I was angry with my mother. And so I'm not eating because I'm angry. So I only found out that I had anxiety because of a book on her shelf. I was drawn to this book that said the anxiety disease when she wasn't in the room. So I flip open the book and I read the symptoms and I'm like, oh my God, I have almost all of these when I'm having these attacks. So when she comes in, 
I had to tell her this, this is what's wrong with me. And I asked her for some tips how to manage the attacks when they came up. And after I got some tips, one of which ended up being something that significantly helped me, which was putting my fingers like on my neck, on one side on that, that vein that you can feel there, putting that pressure there somehow kind of like slows the heart rate, calms the body. So that became one of my tricks for dealing with it. And I got the book. I think I bought that book and like another anxiety book. And I just came to understand what was going on and then use the power of my own mind to get through it. Because it's like, that's how I am. If I understand something, I will find a way to fix it and I will power through. And so I was becoming like agoraphobic, but that really was just because everywhere I went, I had anxiety attacks. So I didn't want to go anywhere. But the more I recovered, the more normal life became. So I made a full recovery from that. I could still be nervous sometimes. And of course, I was still bullied at school, but I was recovered. So from there, it was almost like, I have to be the one to figure this out for people. And I've had to figure it out even in, in adulthood, like I've not been taken seriously for what's really going on. So I need to go get like second opinion sometimes. I've always had to advocate for myself. Sure, sometimes I get some sort of diagnosis, whether that's mental or physical, that makes sense. But no, it's been my responsibility. And so unfortunately, I called myself bipolar inappropriately and screwed myself for 17 years. But I mean, I think it's important to note that with mental illness, there's no test. There's no chemical test. You can't walk into a doctor's office and be definitively tested for a mental illness. It's a best summation based on experience. So if you walk in and say bipolar, it's not your responsibility to get that right. You, there's nothing wrong with you thinking this might be it. And it would be their job to ask the appropriate questions to see if it fits. One of the things that always strikes me is I've heard more than one physician say that they find it frustrating when someone comes into their office and seems to know the right things to say, seems to have their own opinion and seems to be trying to dictate things. And what strikes me is for anyone who's been through the system, it's a matter of self-preservation to learn the system. I think that there needs to be collaboration. There are patients that are, they're, they're going to lie and they're going to try to hide what's really going on in a way that's not beneficial to anybody. For as long as that exists, it doesn't necessarily allow for people working for the system to see those who are truly just trying to like, you know, get better or save themselves from these meds, because that's what I was doing. I was saving my own life. I was not well on the medications. And then I believed that I really needed them. And so it's mind boggling to me to have lived through what I lived through and to have walked around for so many years being like, this is what I need to be stable. Meanwhile, I'm miserable. I'm living a life where I don't really get to do what I enjoy. I can only work part-time because I'm cognitively impaired by the medications. I'm on social security benefits because of these medications. And none of that needed to happen. None of it. I could have gotten my college education and I could have lived a regular, you know, adult life. And I could have 
gotten away from the bullies rather than encountering more bullies in adulthood because adulthood bullies, those are even harder to deal with than the ones in high school and junior high. So it's just, I don't know, it's just sad. But I've worked hard to get where I am, but it, there's just so much that needs to change. And collaboration, I feel, is the only, is the only way. Like I think doctors, any of them, they shouldn't necessarily be expected to know everything because they don't. It takes a lot of voices coming to the table to really figure out what's what. And not everybody knows what they're talking about completely either. So I think it takes a lot more sorting through to figure out who knows best. And then for as long as medications cause the same side effects that they treat, there's just a big problem. Like medications can cause anxiety, depression, psychosis, irritability, all of this stuff. So at what point do you really know if you're meeting a person for the first time and you're not the first prescriber, how do you really know where it all began for that person? Was it medication induced and now they're on this downward spiral or drug induced or alcohol, depending on who it is, or is it something that's really going on in their, in their brain? So having come through these experiences and how do you find ways to advocate for other people? How do you find ways for those experiences to be useful for others? The way I've been doing it, I post online. Um, I've put my story out there in the last couple of years. I didn't start putting it out there when I first started tapering. I kept it to myself. I wanted to see how it all went. And then once I got to a really good place with it and felt confident that I would be able to complete, you know, all of it, um, I started putting it out there for those who might be able to find themselves in my story. And so there have been many people who have contacted me from family members to friends to strangers who are either now off of their medications because of my story or they're in the process of tapering because they realized that their meds weren't benefiting them and that it would be better to be off. I turned my Instagram account into a way to talk about it as well. And then more recently, I happened to get a phone call from my cousin's uncle. I've never met him because I'm not related to him, but I had my phone off for the day. It was September 2nd. And when I turned my phone back on in the evening, I had a text and a voicemail finding out that my younger cousin, 24, was in the hospital on a Section 12A and this was unnecessary. And he was looking to see if I might be able to help. And so I called the hospital that night to find out if I might be able to see her and see what was going on. She'd been there for one week at that point. She was in an ER, was in the mental health wing, the psych wing for eight days, but they don't have mental health workers there. They're working with regular nurses. They've got, um, like a psychiatrist will come check on things and see, but they're not mental health workers. So that was one of the interesting things that I experienced with talking with the nurse that day who was so happy that I was there to help. Like she kept thanking me because she felt bad for what had gone on, regardless of what any staff member thought of any of my, how my cousin was, she wanted my cousin to be okay. And she said to me, she talked with me about the broken system. She's like, the system is broken. She also said that we're not mental health workers here. 
And these people just get stuck here with nowhere to go. She's like, anybody would be miserable under these circumstances. I can't remember her exact words, but like, that's what she was saying. So the setup doesn't make sense. So my cousin had previously been at some sort of kind of, I think like a crisis unit. She was told to go there for medication. They couldn't handle her. So I don't know if she was transported or if she went there herself or how that all came to be, but it was a section 12 and she couldn't leave. And she didn't know that she wasn't going to be able to leave. So it went south. In season one, we discussed section 12s, which generally speaking is the mental health law in Massachusetts used to involuntarily detain a person believed to be displaying symptoms of a serious mental illness. In this situation, Jen's cousin is caught in the undefined space between a 12A, the part of the law used to transport a person to a facility for evaluation, and a 12B, the part of the law that requires a person be evaluated to determine whether or not detention is appropriate. It is far too common for someone who is under a 12A to be transported to an ER instead of a psychiatric facility. This becomes a problem because the 12B, the evaluation part of the law, is only triggered when the person being detained reaches a psychiatric facility. And there is no established limit for how long a person under a 12A can be detained in an ER. As of right now, it is recognized by the courts that this problem exists, but there is no clear plan for when this problem will be addressed by legislators. Which means that situations like this are going to continue to happen. Here's Jen Niles again. So I ended up spending the good portion of the day on September 3rd in the hospital ER. So that's been my only experience with being in some sort of inpatient setting when somebody's been sectioned. And I was a bit hor like horrified by what had gone down. My cousin is the type of person where when her rights are being violated, like she's going to get really angry. So that's not going to go so well for her either. So then it, it just was a bad situation, but she wasn't understood for what was really going on. So that's where the initial problem was. So then she only got more and more angry and they were injecting her with an antipsychotic when she had told them that she has a poor response to antipsychotic medication. In the past, she was given antipsychotics. It took her four years to recover from that whole situation. So the last thing she needed was to be given antipsychotic treatment, but she was being perceived as being in a psychosis, but really she was experiencing like PTSD symptoms. And so it's unfortunate that it can be confusing sometimes for professionals to understand just what they're dealing with. And so I was happy that I was able to be there as her advocate and also a mediator. And I actually just was working professionally as a mediator. Mediation is something that I love. And so I was able to do both in this situation and get the hospital to understand, like the staff to understand, like her behavior. So the things that they were looking at as just this crazy behavior, they could now understand why she was responding to them in the way that she was and how she felt about things. So by the time that the day was over, 
They finally did a proper intake. Apparently there was no proper intake. It was very clear that some bad things went down and they weren't understanding that she was a college student either. They didn't know who she was because they didn't have any records on her. So she was really stressed out about classes coming up and wanted to make sure that she was in school. So I made sure that wherever she went, because an inpatient bed came through, that they weren't going to screw up her education. I know what it's like to have my education screwed up by the mental health system. And I'm like, this is not happening to my cousin. She's incredibly smart. And I didn't want to see her not be able to be in school because people in the mental health field are assuming she's in a psychosis when she's stressed out from her PTSD. So it worked out. She was sent to an in, like she had an inpatient bed for a week, but she was released early. I advocated for her over the phone as well while she was there and she was able to advocate for herself there. So she had some protection. And so when I heard things that were upsetting, like they've taken her food choices away from her as a form of punishment, I made sure I left a message there on the voicemail to say that these good food options are, you know, what she needs for her wellness, as is the going outdoors. So perhaps, you know, maybe she could have those things back um, if she needs to stay until Monday or whatever. So they ended up releasing her and she took a train back to the area. Like she left on her own two feet and took a train back. And when I guess the doctor there was pretty convinced that she was, I don't know, in a psychosis or too scattered and was also trying to get her to take an antipsychotic by telling her it was a sleep aid. She was trying to just tell my cousin, and this is going by my cousin's word, that she was being given a sleep aid and being told it's a sleep aid and not an antipsychotic. She was very vocal about antipsychotics being an issue for her. And so was I. And so they were still trying to sneak an antipsychotic. She didn't take it. It's just so frustrating because I can really respect the professionals that are stuck working in this broken system when they do have good intentions and when they might even potentially be fearful, you know, for their own, you know, safety. That's understandable. But where I get extra irritated is when there are those professionals that they don't care and they'll make a situation worse or they'll abuse you know a patient in some way just mistreat them because that's not ever okay but there are those people that exist you know that are on a power trip and so the only way for this to ever get better is that people have to start talking about it and people have to care to make the change and be open to that and then start weeding out some of the people who don't care and who make the situations worse to see more from Jen Niles, check out the show notes to find links to her Instagram and Twitter feeds. For the end of this episode, I wanted to share my first experience with antidepressants. Several months after I had first been diagnosed with anorexia, my physician gave me a handful of pills. Not a prescription, just a handful of free sample antidepressants that he had acquired from somewhere. I took those antidepressants for about two weeks, but they didn't seem to have any effect on my condition. So my physician gave me another handful of a different type of antidepressant and told me to take those. Two weeks later, no change. So he shrugged his shoulders and basically said, oh well, I only gave you those antidepressants because weight gain is one of the possible side effects. So I was hoping they would lead you to gain some weight. At the time, the only reason I took that medication 
was because this physician suggested that he was considering using a Section 12 on me, and I was willing to try anything to avoid a Section 12. Soon after, I stopped working with him, but the next time he saw me, he told me that I had to go to a hospital for medical reasons, and then coordinated with a psychiatrist at that hospital to have me committed, in part because I was, quote, manipulative. I have thought about this a lot, because what does it say about us as a society that a general practitioner can accumulate a shelf full of free samples and then use coercion to pressure a patient into consuming handfuls of unprescribed controlled psychiatric medication, not to treat the thing that the medication was approved for, but instead to intentionally attempt to induce one of the side effects. What does it say about us that a physician can do all of that and then legally have that patient detained because the physician believes it is the patient who is being manipulative? I think a lot about that, about power dynamics, about who has the authority and who gets to control the narrative. Committable is produced by Jim McQuaid and Michelle Stockman. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Jesse Mangan. All music is from the song Reasonable by Christopher G. Brown.